Hello, everyone. Welcome, creeps. We're starting. Yes. It begins now. <laughs> no. So I guess this is our first post-Halloween episode? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we're going to keep it spooky. Yes, Halloween lives on in our hearts. How was your Halloween? It was good. Just hung out with the family, as you know, because you were there. Yeah, I was. Um, We just had that bonfire, and we made s'mores, which was cool. I only had s'mores once in my life, and I was like, I don't understand what the big deal is. And then when we were making them... Uh, I forgot who it was. They were like, no, you, you did them wrong. You have to burn them on one side. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I, you know, that's why they weren't good for me when I first had them. Yeah. And then when I had them again, I was like, yeah, still not, still not convinced why they're such a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> I enjoyed mine. I mean, but the kids, uh, they enjoy like Mimi in particular, my niece, um, she just really wanted to make more s'mores. And I was like, sure, make them for me and I'll eat them. Yeah, I think they were having fun just fucking around with the fire. Yeah, sticking things in fire. Yeah, but yeah, it was a really nice evening. Yeah, it was really cool. We had good food and then we sat around the fire telling ghost stories. Yeah, yeah, we did, which we'd never done ever. Yeah. Mm-mm. I think, uh, I think what helped was... Or kind of just inspired the idea was our podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think before then, or maybe it's just in my imagination, there was like some sort of apprehension of, you know, hearing or dealing with the occult, you know. And uh, I guess it's just made the family a little more comfortable. <laughs> seeing Embracing us. their spooky side. Yeah, because they, they listen in. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, pretty sure this week is my week to go first. So um, I feel like every week has been your week to go first. You want to talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to get on the chair and talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're continuing with our regular, regularly scheduled programming. Yeah. And yeah, so this week we're going north of the wall again. Yeah. Are we though? Yeah. The stories from Canada. Oh, you are. Sorry. Yeah. I'm like, how the hell do you know what my story is? Oh, no, I don't know what your story is. I'm just saying that I'm taking us north of the wall for this okay. first part. Let's go. Okay, so Tranquil, Tranquil All right. Sanatorium. I did watch something Sick. earlier on to uh, say the pronunciation. I'm just going to call it Tranquil. Okay. Uh, it's just French for Tranquil. Sick. So... That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. My right sources this week are abandonedhistoryblog.wordpress.com, uh, camloops.ca. Camloops is the name of the town where this place is actually located. All right. But it's Canadian, so it's a crazy name. Camloops. Uh, travelzoo.com, infotel.ca, and history goes bump. Uh, I read up, they did an episode on it. And I didn't listen to it, but I read their notes. All right, so let's get into the history of this place. Okay. So Tranquil, or Tranquil itself, 
basically there's this lake in British Columbia near uh what the fuck's it called? Kamloops. And it's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years as like fishing and hunting area. And then Kamloops itself was originally set up in like I can't remember what fucking year, but it was a basically a trading post where like First Nations people would meet up and swap goods. Cool. Yeah, First Nations, Native American, yeah, but Canadian. Anyway, so yeah, I'm not sure at which point they renamed it. I'm sure it was something to do with colonization. Uh, basically, there was a First Nations chief that owned that area, or like it was his territory before the English and the French or whoever took it first. But his name was supposed to be Sanquil, which meant something in their language. And then I think what happened was that was his name, the French word tranquil it just kind of fell into place in the 1890s there was two ranches belonging to the fortune and cooney family they were both in business together by the sounds of things and they began taking in consumptives as borders on their land consumptives being people suffering from tuberculosis or consumption back then yeah well basically i think the idea of it was they were pretty remote at the t- like it still is a remote area so these people would come in live on their land in like small cabins or tents but like in a separate pocket i think it was just so they could they basically they would take care of themselves for as long as they possibly could i don't know what happened once they got too sick to look after themselves but either way i think the whole idea was just to stop the spread anyway in 1904 the like townspeople from i keep having to go back up and look at that name cam loops got together and arranged the meeting and we're like we need to do something about all these consumptives and they ended up buying the land off the two families fortune and cooney and they rented oh between the two fortune and cooney they also had a lease on like two thousand acres of government land so basically they ended up with like almost uh three and a half thousand acres Mm -hmm. worth of really nice ranch land so the sanatorium itself was built in 1907 and it was originally called King Edward the Seventh Sanatorium. Nobody seems to know it by that name, though. The place was in con- a constant state of expansion as the TB pandemic was not slowing down at all. So by 1910, uh, it could house 49 patients and they employed, employed four nurses and 12 attendants. So initially, what they did was they just moved straight into the existing like farmhouses and stuff but constantly had to keep building and particularly after world war one which would have been like 1918 like at the end of that all these hundreds of thousands of veterans came back with tuberculosis it's like well you survived the war but now you have tb mm-hmm. so by 1932 the sanatorium was able to accommodate up to 360 patients didn't say anything about the staffing at that time but basically it wasn't just the sanatorium, but at this stage, because it was so remote, they ended up building a miniature city in the grounds. So everybody who worked there lived there, and everybody who lived there worked there, whether it was directly for the sanatorium or like in the local stores or whatever. This went on for years. So generations of families all lived there. They had their own houses. They had a gym, fire departments, stores. They had become almost self-sufficient thanks for the farm 
um, that they had acquired during the purchase of the land. And the farm was actually earning a profit as well. So it was this, you know, super steady, self-preserved thing, basically. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, it almost sounds like too good to be true. (laughs) Kind of. You know what I mean? And on the farm, so the farm provided the city, like, or well, the facilities with fresh meat and vegetables and also sold to outside thing as well. Like, that's how they turned a profit. And apparently they had everything but chickens. All right. I just thought, like, if you're going to have... Well, maybe in the weather, chickens can't really survive. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Like, bigger animals can. Mm. Oh, yeah. And a little note, when they were building the place, as they did used to do with, like, general older construction projects, they linked every single building with an underground tunnel. Sick. So... Basically, if you were in your house, you could walk down into the basement, open a door, and there was just this vast cavernous system underneath that went everywhere and anywhere. Maybe it wasn't scary because there wasn't scary movies yet. Yeah, like at this time, it was just, oh, well, it makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is practical. Yeah. Well, Donna, it just makes sense. (laughs) But yeah, and because as well, like, this is British Columbia, so the winters get freezing cold they would use these tunnels to obviously transport goods i'm assuming the locals would use them just to get to and from work and stuff when in the really bad months but also they would use them to transport the dead bodies from the sanitarium to there was a graveyard on site and i'm sure there was a morgue in the hospital itself but the idea was so as the other patients wouldn't get freaked out because like these patients were paying to actually be there like this was a privilege to attend the sanatorium it costs like 50 or yeah i have it it costs 55 dollars per month to stay there it's a lot of money a lot of money and the average stay was around 200 days that's crazy so i just looked up how much 55 dollars and 1910 is worth yeah and that's about a thousand five hundred so they would have been paying like a thousand like 1500 every month yeah, and obviously, like, not earning any money while they were there. So, yeah. Basically, I'm assuming that it was more or less, maybe not well to do families, but people were struggling to put their family members in there. Well, yeah, because, I mean, people didn't come across that kind of money very easily. Yeah. And there was some survivors. And I was actually texting a lady earlier on today whose father was in this sanatorium in 1954 mm-hmm. and is still alive today. Memory is still sharp as a tack. No shit. Yeah. And all she said, because I read, I basically, I got her number off this paranormal blog. So I texted her because she was like, please contact me. So I texted her being like, oh my God, like this, how crazy. And she was like, oh no, it was nothing paranormal. She just said it was an awful time. Wow. Yeah. So... <laughs> she didn't go much deeper than that. Oh man. But I thought like that was still a really interesting link. She didn't give you nothing? All she said was, let's just say his time there wasn't a good experience. He was there for a year and survived, unlike many others. Wow. So it's almost like that's that's a weird way to put it, right? Like It's like me saying, oh, I went to Memorial Hermann and I survived a year there. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? But like that, tuberculosis back then was like the number one killer Yeah, all across the world, like. Uh So the odds of anyone surviving was like slim to none anyway. 
the hospital's focus at the time was just preventing the spread of TB mm-hmm. because there was no cure back then, like by at this stage. Oh, the parallels. Yeah. The parallelograms. <laughs> <laughs> so the doctors and nurses, what they did was the patients lived on a strict, re- strict regimen of rest. Like, I think they weren't allowed really leave their beds all too much. Uh, healthy foods, which was provided by the farm, and fresh air. So they were kept in open air verandas in Canada all year round. That's cold. That's, I don't know, like, how they didn't literally freeze to death. But there are reports from the nurses who tended them, finding them on winter mornings with frost on their face. Poor things. Yeah, I remember um, when we were watching Ghost Adventures, they had visited this, uh, was it the... Waverly Hills? Yeah. Trans-Allegheny, one of them. And they had, like, those open verandas for the TB patients. So I think this was common practice back then, but it's just like, fuck. But in fucking Canada, man... Yeah. I don't know how the fuck they did it. I don't know how the fuck you <laughs> lived in Toronto as long as you did. Never having a car. Going to from work in that fucking weather out there, man. Yeah. That's a different kind of it's a different kind of people <laughs> there, person, whatever. Uh, you get used to it pretty quickly. But yeah. um Yeah, no, I you would. <laughs> I would not. Anyway. <laughs> Anti-tuberculosis drugs were introduced in the late 40s, and by 1958, the hospital had closed down. 1958. Yeah. So, after closing, the sanatorium facilities were transferred to the Mental Health Services, or to the Mental Health Services branch of British Columbia. Wait, so they went from, they went from a hospital where they were getting treated for TB to a mental ward? Or a mental institution? Yeah. Because, like... It was already a medical building. You know what I mean? It was a hospital. Yeah. I mean, this is just what they used to do. But I mean, they still do this kind of shit now. Oh, okay. Anyway, so the site was used as an institution for the mentally disabled and ill. Not my words, but this is the phrasing used in the local history report. Okay. So again, from the Kamloops uh, website. Apparently, it wasn't the worst facility at the time. But it still didn't sound like a fantastic place. Like, this was kind of how they seemed to market it. It was like, ah, it's not as bad as... The others. Yeah. And I think it was also treated as kind of like an overflow facility. Mm -hmm. So these other... There was two or three, like, kind of main sanatoriums in the BC province. And these guys would get the overflow. Families of the patients were not allowed to give anything to the patients. So, like, you know, families would show up with whatever, like, their favorite candy or food and new clothes and shit like that but everything had to be given to the staff first so it would be like taken in for inspection nobody really knew whether the patients would even get this stuff but everything like food clothing money matches whatever all mail was checked before being handed over to the patients like it started getting really weird they also did an awful lot of therapeutic labor which, you know, good for the mind, good for the body and soul. Ah, for labor. Get out and work. Exactly. It was all unpaid. And I'm sure it was all to do with, you know, this big ass farm and maintaining all of these fucking buildings around. Or attending to the other patients. Well, yeah. And actually, our friend that we were texting earlier heard that, like, in the TB 
hospital would go around giving out like the patient's mail and stuff like that. But this seemed like a nice, like it wasn't like a chore. It was like, a, oh, good, I'm going to walk around. Anyway, from this point on, there's not a huge amount of information. It seems like all of the records were shipped to this big, um, like... Filing building? Yeah, in a separate... It, it's still in BC, but it's like in a separate city and seems like it's not very easy to get hold of. And on the Kamloops website, which is like the official PDF of like all the information that they have about the place it just says information including the official name of the institution isn't in the Kamloops archives collections as well as this the official records they're still restricted for like the next six to seven years at least so after that it becomes public knowledge but only at the discretion of the company that's holding them yeah so anyway it all gets a little bit hazy there that's weird yeah, so. you better not catch me as an archivist. I'd be like, "You want to research what? Yeah, 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 you can have it." I'd be like, "Hello, media!" I'd be like looking yeah. through all this stuff. Be like, "Look what I found: Facebook, Instagram." Yeah, <laughs> this is gonna be the biggest podcast ever. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it operated it as. Uh, basically a mental asylum or for want of a better word yeah until 1983 when they were told the place was going to be shut down for good and at this stage there was a total of 650 staff right so you can only imagine how many fucking patients there were and i think that was just direct hospital staff i don't know that that actually included people in the local businesses on the on the grounds on the, yeah on the grounds on the site because basically people now just call it like a miniature city yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, there was 40, 40 of these staff were in a union and they had to sit in in the building, refused to leave. So the patients from, let's just call it the mental asylum. What's the proper word? I don't know. Okay. Anyway, the pa- these patients were dispersed back to like other more modern hospitals or whatever. The families were not happy at all because they were there from from a lot of the families purely because it meant oh well you know we can still visit them on weekends and stuff like that and now all of a sudden they're being moved to like vancouver and shit like this so there was all sorts of controversy um at the time but these staff were just worried about their jobs because like i said this was their lives like their parents had grown up there they had grown up there yeah anyway they managed to get it turned into a a detention center for young offenders but that only lasted like five or six years and it was officially closed in 1991. So not that long ago, really. Yeah. Um, some Italian guy bought it. There, his name was there, but I just... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at your notes, and I think it's funny how you wrote some Italian guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I know like, his name was there. It probably took me more letters to type out some Italian guy. His name was like Camprisi or something. Anyway, he bought it planning to... I think that's a type of salad. It's caprese. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, so this Italian dude bought it, and he bought it with the idea of turning it into like a, like a nice resort town. And to be honest, like it's a fucking great idea because it's right on the lake, all this land, whatever. So the dude was from a town in Italy called Padova, and he had painted like basically all he managed to actually get done 
was I think like some general upkeep on the buildings and to paint a few murals of his hometown, Padova. Then by like 1998, he had just stopped paying the mortgage and like taxes and shit. So the government just repossessed it. Weird. Yeah. So I I think he just like realized how much money it was actually going to cost him. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. But yeah, so because of these weird murals and stuff, the place now has like a nickname of Padova City. Oh. Yeah, which... That's interesting. Yeah, apparently it's stuck. I think it's kind of like a local joke. I see. And it's currently owned by people who plan to return it to the self-sufficient community it once was. Sick. Yeah, it is a really cool idea. I don't know how they're planning to do it. Like, they've owned it for years and it's... I don't know. They have like a nice farm or something. I just have here. They're hippies. I saw uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I um, was either they're hippies or they're hippos. And I just figured hippos <laughs> didn't make yeah, more sense. Yeah, they're actually raising hippos now <laughs> on the farm. Anyway. On to the paranormal stuff. All right. So straight off the bat, the current owners say that all the stories about the place are lies. That the land is God's land. All right. Whatever the fuck that means. I don't, oh, okay. I don't know. Also, the sanatorium was featured on some MTV show, I think called Fear, something like that. Mm. And I think they might be responsible for some of the rumors about the place now. Two blogs written by either a brother and a sister or a dude and his friend's sister claimed that MTV actually paid local kids in pizza to make noise around the property while they were filming there. That's cheesy. Yeah, like... Not the pizza, but the stunt. <laughs> well, I hope the pizza was. Um, ah, pizza. Yep. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this kind of, like, because it's listed everywhere. as like Canada's most haunted destination, all this stuff. But there's not, honestly, a lot of stories about the place. It's mm. just, like, so haunted. So fucking haunted. Crazy haunted. But then that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, when I found out that, the, that MTV had actually paid local kids to run around and make noise while they film. I was like, fuck this. But I had already sunk a lot of time into doing the history of the place. And it looks like a fucking cool place. Yeah. So I just kept digging deeper. And basically the, the bulk of the paranormal stuff that I found was people's own experiences on comments from other articles that I read. Yeah, I noticed that's that happens a lot. Like, So that like if you want to get unique evidence yeah that's generally where you tend to dive because otherwise it gets just really repetitive or just um fake no well yeah that too but it's almost like someone's reinventing someone else's story or like distorting it you know kind of like the the game telephone yeah yeah like chinese whispers or whatever just kind of um that's racist is it I'm just kidding. Uh. Honestly, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I apologize. Anyway. Well, I mean, they whisper too, right? Everybody Everybody whispers. We're not going down this road. (laughs) So some of the common things that are said to have been experienced there are a bizarre twisting mist, mist that has been captured in pictures. This mist is never witnessed by the naked eye but has supposedly been captured by many a, a person it's just how like on their cameras oh that's so it's it's only in photographs like that okay these. i get it so something like that i wouldn't normally believe in or whatever yeah 
But then I thought back to like our photos from Edinburgh that we only kind of rediscovered, and it has this like weird ass fucking mist that we didn't see at yeah. the time. So I'm like, mm, yeah. no. Even then, like I don't take a lot of like I don't stake a lot into it. You know, I take those kind of photos with the grain of salt. It was more so the experience that kind of just stuck with me. Yeah, you know, of trying to take those pictures. Yeah. Um. Anyway, there are stories of a nurse being murdered in the underground tunnels while she was transporting a patient from one building to the next. The patient, like, you know, he's a mental patient. He lost his mind and he killed her. Nowhere could I find actual, like, articles or nothing about that. Like, yeah. So that is one of the legends. Visitors claim to see a mother crying for her child on the sixth and eighth floors. While others have reported hearing the voices of kids playing in the children's ward or seeing bright orbs near the main entrance. Below the buildings is a series of underground tunnels. Oh yeah, so apparently people always hear voices in these tunnels. These bright orbs are like super common. Like I've seen a lot of like first hand comments and stuff that were like, Yeah, we were there, we saw these weird fucking dancing orbs around the main entrance. Now Personally, I remember seeing like weird orbs um, in one of the fucking places that we went to at home. And obviously, I'm going to say, you know, oh, maybe it was kids with torches or whatever. But a lot of people were seeing these orbs like with their own eyes, not just in pictures and stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, people are often seen in the windows, usually just black shadows. But people are always seeing people in the windows. This one really hit home for me. Go ahead. Apparently, an electrician died while working in the basement. Don't know how. Don't know why. Oh, you still work in a lot of abandoned buildings. Me? Yeah, you. Yeah, like older buildings and stuff. Yeah, well, older buildings, yeah. Um, But yeah, anyway, apparently he is one of the apparitions down there. These, This could have easily been you had they decided to, you know what, let's renovate this building. And they're putting a lot of money into it. And we're going to give this contract to this company and you just happen to work for that company yeah (laughs) basically it's come close a few times uh yeah so if you see like an electrician down there in the middle of the night he's a ghost (laughs) (laughs) so anyway here are some of the comments from abandoned history blog this was from the actual blog and this was their second time down there the first time they went down they did the actual historical tour that the couple that owned the place are now running but nothing like major happened so they went back and broke in, which seems to be the only way to really get a good look at the place. Yeah. And it goes, after two hours of walking around the property, pulling at every single boarded up window, we were losing hope until we saw the small window on the second floor of one of the main hospital buildings. We scrambled up the side of the building and crammed our bodies through the window, my shoulders barely fitting through. We stood up inside a greenish shower room, ceramic tiles peeling away from the walls, and high-fived each other, ecstatic that we finally got inside this incredible institution. Suddenly, we hear a loud, deep grunt come from some room off the main hallway, followed by heavy boot steps on the old wooden floors. We immediately shut up, for fear that a caretaker was in the building for some odd reason, and that we had been caught. Too frightened about getting caught, we crouched in the rank shower room. I finally mustered up the confidence and said, hello? Instantly, another grunt, louder this time, 
echoed down the hall, followed by more heavy footsteps walking away from where we were hunkered down. I could feel all my hairs on my body standing on end, like there was an electric current streaming through the air. Bam! A door slammed shut and the footsteps stopped. After what seemed like hours, I crept towards the bathroom doorway and into the hall. I craned my neck past the door frame and peered into the vacant hallway. There was no one there. In fact, not a single footprint had disturbed the layer of dust on the wood-panelled floor. That's that one. And some comments, or one comment on this. There was a few comments on this of people saying like, we saw the orbs and blah, blah, blah. But this one was from, I think her name was Lexi. I grew up in, I grew up in Kamloops. Ka- fucking hell. It's the most weirdest Kamloops. name. Kamloops. Kamloops. I grew up in Kamloops. I grew up in Kamloops and have gone to Padova City regularly when I was a teenager. I've had quite a few paranormal interactions. One being hearing someone following us. Another hearing screams in the old water tower. Another, I took a picture of an old building that had nothing but dust in the window. When I developed the picture, there was a smiley face with the word smile written underneath. That's crazy. Yeah, I thought that was a bit much. So this one, this one is a comment from someone who lived there. Um, and it was in the hauntedplaces.org article so the dude's name was just i think it's a dude it was just d my grandfather was a medical superintendent at tranquil from 1968 till 1978 we lived with my grandparents in what was known as the doctor's house during the time i can attest to the fact that the place is most definitely haunted one night around 11 p.m in 1972 (laughs) this is going back a bit The entire family was out visiting with the head nurse who lived just across from our house. All the doors and windows were locked and I was there by myself watching TV. My grandfather kept all his empty ginger ale cans in paper bags in the back entrance to return for refund. I heard the bags of cans being violently shaken around. I thought the family had returned home early and someone had tripped over the bags of cans. I went to investigate but there was nobody there. So I went back to watch TV. About three minutes later, I heard a shuffling of footsteps that sounded like someone with a club foot, very specific, shuffling towards the room where I was watching TV. As the footsteps got closer to the room I was in, I could hear heavy breathing. The footsteps got closer to the door of the TV room and stopped outside the door, but the heavy breathing continued. I was absolutely paralyzed with fear and froze in my chair not making a sound. The breathing continued for about 15 minutes, then started to fade away. I didn't dare go investigate anymore as I was scared out of my wits. About 45 minutes later, the rest of the family came home. I asked if they had played a joke on me, but they said they were at the nurse's house all evening and never left. I confirmed this the next day with my friend who was one of the nurse's sons. It's actually giving me goosebumps now as I'm typing this. Very scary indeed. On another occasion in 2015, a friend of mine with a group of other people snuck into Tranquil about 3am. They managed to access the tunnels where they said they saw mysterious orbs of light flying around. My friend is a pretty big guy, 6'2", and he and the others were so terrified that they got out ASAP. 
All my time spent living at Tranquil was so wonderful and special, but that one night in 1972 will haunt my memory forever. The thing that I thought was interesting about this, in 1972 is when, you know, they housed the people that were suffering with mental disabilities, whatever the fuck that is. Yeah. And the whole place was linked with these tunnels. Like, do you think maybe one of the patients got out? It's likely. Yeah, right. So either way, it's a fucking creepy story. <laughs> yeah. Um. Um. Uh, my only question is, what's a clubfoot? Google it. Just Google clubfoot. I don't know what makes it happen. I think it's just like birth defects or something. Why is it called club? It sounds like a club. Yeah, no, I don't know why it's called. Like, it sounds like the name of a foot doctor's office. <laughs> clubfoot. Yeah. Dum, 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 dum. Hi, welcome to Club Foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so this one I got from a website called NovaRockefeller.com. I thought I was onto a winner. I thought this was like, oh, cool, like a nice small-time blog. Turns out she's some like IG influencer and her boyfriend is uh, some white rapper. I don't like him, but this is his story. That's allowed. Yeah, he... I don't know whether his thing is like... You know, done ironically, but he just seems like a dick. Like for shop factor, kind of like Borat. Yeah, kind of. So anyway, he did do a video of this on his YouTube where he just tells the story. It's pretty long-winded, but I've cut out most of the bullshit, I think. Anyway, like most of the... Like basically, he's very animated. So anyway, he was there for a video shoot. They didn't have any idea about the place other than it was abandoned buildings. And when they got there first, it was daytime. They go in to check the place out and they see these weird lights and hear these voices. And a couple of kids come walking out of one of the houses. They were there doing the same thing. Well, not a video shoot. They were just there exploring. They find these tunnels and they're like, like, obviously they didn't do any research about the place so these tunnels for them were like what the fuck is this and they go down it's full of like weird old medical equipment and stuff so they're getting like they're pretty freaked out and they're like oh shit so let's start shooting this music video down here because it's pretty cool they're there they're fine they're starting to get wrapped up down here and they start hearing voices in the tunnels so they open one of the doors off this tunnel and they notice then that it goes up into a somebody's house or whatever it used to be and this freaks them out too much so they leave and they go back to the main sanatorium and they set up and they start shooting or whatever at this stage it gets dark while they're in there so nothing else happens they get all the footage that they want they get back to the car and they realize that they forgot a light and they get into a fight over it because there's three of them there's the rapper guy his best friend and the video producer so Turns out that the rapper guy's best friend doesn't like the video producer. And he's like, yeah, I know he forgot a light. I saw him put it there. I just didn't say anything. That's the kind of people we're talking about, right? Then he realizes that this light was actually worth $1,200 and the video producer is not leaving without it. Yeah. So the producer stays at his car and the two best friends head back. The rapper guy and his buddy. And he has this tiny little flashlight and... They go back, whatever. Anyway, it's all in complete fucking darkness now. Spooky as shit. You have to walk through the forest and all and up this mad hill just to get back to it. And yeah, so this is where the friend says, I know exactly where the light is. I saw him put it down and I knew he wouldn't pick it back up. 
I just don't fucking like him. So I was going to let him leave it behind. So they know exactly which room to go back to in the sanatorium. So they go, they get it. And as they're heading out, the two of them just start getting freaked out. They start thinking that they're seeing things behind them. But then they realize that they're both seeing the same fucking thing. And every time they turn around, it's not there. All of a sudden, they look in one of the rooms off the corridor. And there's this shadow. Like a six foot something shadow standing in the doorway. The two of them fell over each other trying to get the fuck out of this place. They just saw this and he said some primal instinct just took over and they gunned it. They fell out of this place getting out of there. But he described the shadow pretty well as a shadow person. Really thick outline. You could not see through it but you could kind of see something through it and all this. But yeah, so they reckon that they were followed out of this place. The reason why I included this in or why I included this in the story was because he had no knowledge of the place whatsoever. And the two of them saw the exact same thing at the exact same time. And it was like it was tricking them all the way up until this point where it just manifested in full fucking view. And the two guys legged it out. Yeah, so that's Tranquil. Sick. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to visit there one day. And maybe get some organic cheese or something. That would be cool. Some squeaky cheese. That's a thing. Yeah, in Wisconsin. This yeah, is in yeah. British yeah. Columbia. Yeah. Oh, what's, I mean, they can have squeaky cheese. <laughs> it's north. That's like saying, no, you know, you can't get <laughs> yellow cheese in Canada. <laughs> you can't. They only sell that. They only sell white cheese. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, it's a pretty interesting looking place. And I will put up a load of pictures because there is tons and tons of pictures from like old postcards back in the day and like obviously so much modern photography of this like creepy ass abandoned place Papa. sick (laughs) are you being the computer no i'm being clubfoot oh (laughs) (laughs) all right y'all Let's get into it. Entertain me. Um, so I'm gonna preface it preface this by including my soul source. Called well, my source is uh Possessed, the true story of an exorcism by Thomas B. Allen. Now this isn't just any exorcism. This is the story that inspired the screenplay for the exorcist. Bum, bum, bum. And then you see like a, just imagine the the meme of that groundhog where he looks surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'll edit that into the video. <laughs> I feel like oh, every, we already used him in a video. But do it again. <laughs> Have you seen The Exorcist? Yeah, of course. Have you? Um, I think I may have seen it once. What? In my drug induced days. I'm not sure. we have to watch it then but i remember um my mom saying that she had seen it before when she had first came over to the u.s because she's from mexico yeah and she came over here when she was 14 it was just her and uh her cousin and they came over here to work as you do and uh she said that she had saw it in the movie theaters and she said that she was so scared <laughs> and she doesn't watch scary movies like 
you can't get her to watch scary movies. She likes those really bad action movies. Yeah, she likes really bad action movies. And she used to be really into telenovelas. <laughs> so, yeah, so my mom saw that. And when she got home from the theater, she could. She said she couldn't sleep. And she slept with a picture of um, her mom. with, <laughs> like She had a picture of her mom in a frame. And she would uh. like clutch it when she was in oh, bed because so <laughs> she was so scared <laughs> i mean like i was telling uh mimi uh my niece again to keep showing up in this episode i think i just need to text her we were talking about books and how i thought maybe um i just didn't like to read like leisurely anymore yeah but um it just takes a really good book to pull you back to in. pull you back in and this was it yeah I had read the book of execution and it, after a while it got really vexing. But this one was such a smooth read, but towards the end I had to skim through it because we needed to hurry up and record this episode. But I strongly suggest that you pick it up, read it. It's on Google Books. Again, it's by Thomas B. Allen. It's called Possessed, a true story of an exorcism. The names of the people involved, like most of the people that were involved um and the person who was possessed their names have been changed mm -hmm. and other uh, like pref names of professions have been changed as well or and like all, all sorts of things have been changed Take their identities yeah. yeah um but anyways so this case was documented under a pseudonym roland doe or robert Mannheim. okay if you're reading the book by thomas b allen because I well, I first came across the story by on Wikipedia, and it referred to him as Rolando, um, but in the book they referred to him as Robert or Robbie Mannheim. Anyways, so yeah, like their identities, names, you know, all changed. Um, I'm not gonna dig into that because I'm not a dick. But anyways, Robert or Robbie was born approximately in 1935 in Maryland to Carl and Phyllis. The Great Depression was still going on, and because of this, his grandma lived with them. So it okay. was mm -hmm. Grandma Wagner. It was normal for several members of a family to be living in one house because times were hard. As a teenager, he lived a very routine life. Uh, he went to school. He went. He came home. He was a big homebody. Um, not into sports. Loser. <laughs> thanks <laughs> um he preferred board games uh listened to the radio in his free time you know he was also an only child so he relied on adults for company right he didn't exhibit any mental or emotional issues so he was just a fairly normal kid yeah you know f for a normal for an only child yeah probably a little quiet or whatever yeah he was his aunt harriet who knew he liked board games, introduced him to the Ouija board. Why is that a board game? <laughs> like, fuck's sake, Hasbro. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, fuck's sake, Hasbro. <laughs> um, she introduced him to the Ouija board uh, one day when she was over there visiting. In this book, it describes her as spiritual, which... Like, the way that it reads, the book read, it almost seemed like, oh, well, like, they, they, like, 
it almost implied that because you're spiritual, you don't believe in evil things. You see what I'm saying? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a catch-all, basically. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of get where she was coming from, though, as well, if this kid was like a little fucking loner. Or maybe that just was the thing back then, you I, know? I think it was. But as well, like, this is the perfect game for fucking little Robbie. He won't be annoying us anymore. We can drink in the parlor. This is a one-player game. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> hey, Bob, go find a friend. <laughs> um. Anyways, it says that his mom was spir- his aunt Harriet was spiritual, and she explained to him that any spirits that were around could move the planchette if he tried to communicate with them. Robbie liked the board. Of course he is. He started using it when he was alone, because he used to play with her. Aunt Harriet had explained to Robbie and Phyllis who believed in the spiritual but didn't practice it, that spirits of the dead who wish to communicate will do so with the board or they would find other ways, like knocking on walls. While you're using the board, though? Um, No, it it doesn't have to be. Yeah, they could be in conjunction with each other or separated incidents. She also made them aware that, that seances, what seances were, and how they could be used to communicate with the dead. She told them, when using a board, spirits can control your hands and fingers and seances. They can enter and control your whole body. Sounds like she was kind of woke. Yeah. Like she was the cool aunt. Yeah. <laughs> well, Robbie really took to her. You yeah. know, I think it was because she was... Young and free spirited. And, and she was, yeah, she was cool yeah. Aunt Harriet, you know. With a name like Harriet. <laughs> <laughs> Can't not be cool. On January 15, 1949, Robbie and Grandma Wagner were home. Carl and Phyllis had gone out. Robbie and his grandma heard a dripping noise in the house and looked everywhere in their two-story home to try to find the source. The last place they looked was in the second-story room that belonged to Grandma Wagner. There they noticed a picture of Jesus on the wall starting to shake. Once Carl and Phyllis made it home, the sound stopped, but the sound of scratching began that they all heard. So like they were still, Robbie and Grandma were still in Grandma Wagner's. And I guess when Carl and Phyllis came home, they were like, what the hell are y'all doing up here? Y'all come here, check this shit out. So Carl looked under Grandma's bed and said a mouse who probably wanted shelter from the winter probably just came inside, you know? Yeah. So the matter was settled, and they all went to bed. Can I, um, sorry, we had mice in our, we had a garage in our house when we first moved into it, but we converted it into the playroom, which is what it is now. But I, I don't think the mice ever actually got into the house. They were just in the garage. And around this time, I had a super hip disc man and i guess i've just been falling asleep listening to music or well now podcasts for fucking ever because i used to listen to my disc man and it would be under my pillow right so anyway this one night i hear this scratching under my bed i'm like what the fuck is that i was only young like maybe 11 or 12 so i like pulled out all the shit underneath my bed and i was like there's nothing fucking there got back into bed and i heard the scratching again so i go downstairs and like that the mice are like in my fucking bedroom like this is crazy so dad was up there for ages and we were like we set a trap and all i think and he was like there's no way that they got up here and they're not in the kitchen like anyway i got back into bed 
and I heard the scratching again and I realized it was my disc man changing track <laughs> yeah I remember that noise yeah and I, know I what just you're talking about yeah I never told my dad if you listen to <laughs> music with headphones on a disc man and you leave it there like even without like if it's really loud you can hear the music in the yeah. headphones or you can just hear like the like of the discman. Yeah. I remember that. And ba- yeah, so and what I I had the disc on random. Mm. So it would like really have to change tracks. Yeah. Make a lot of noise. Yeah. That's sorry. Funny. So yeah, sorry dad. It was my discman. He's not he doesn't listen. No, but mom does and she can tell him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So maybe it was her discman, maybe it was grandma Wag- Wagner's discman. Yeah. So she's going to she's going to be like, "See, Jay, it was just his Walkman, and then he still forgot my chips from the Chinese. <laughs> that is an in joke, <laughs> and I f- <laughs> it ends now. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> sorry, guys. For the next several nights, the family continued to hear scratching noises that started at 7 p.m. and stopped by midnight. Carl ended up calling an exterminator. Um, when you know who searched around the, around the house he found nothing but just in case he put poison under the floorboards um but the scratching continued and carl i guess he like it drove this sh- him crazy because yeah, he ended up would. he ended up ripping up the floorboards and the wall panels like trying to find this fucking rodent <laughs> Shit. anyways uh but like you know from a day to day the family kind of just agreed that of course, it had to have been a rodent, a rat, whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is that big rodent that we just saw? Oh, a capybara? Oh, it had to be a big rodent. A capybara, yeah. rat, capybara. mice. <laughs> I think that's what Yeah. We're watching Bob's Burgers now, people. <laughs> um, but, but, Phyllis began to suspect that the dripping and the scratching had something to do with the Ouija board. Oh, so the dripping was continuing as well? No, just the scratching, but because they oh, couldn't sorry, find that, the source. That's what it started as, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On January 29th, Aunt Harriet had passed. And Robbie began spending a lot of time playing with the board. After her death, all noises that they heard before had stopped. But new ones began in Robbie's room upstairs. He started to hear footsteps as soon as he started changing into his PJs to go to sleep. He said they sounded like squeaky footsteps that would walk up and down the length of his bed. This didn't scare him, though. After a week of this, Phyllis and Granny Wagner came in to sleep with him, and they heard it, too. So I guess he wasn't telling anyone, you know? And that's how they found out, like, they were just... Because, like, this whole time, it just seems like they're a close-knit family. Yeah, but that didn't scare him. No, I think it was because of those conversations that he had with Aunt Harriet. Like, remember, they're probably just thinking they're spirits that they didn't equate evil to spirits or demons or any like demons and evil was never on the spectrum in the beginning. Yeah, this was just like, oh, this is cool. These are my dead friends or whatever. Yeah. Still freak. Okay. (laughs) Phyllis asked out loud if it was Harriet making that noise. Oh, yeah. So they thought it was her for a long time. Okay, yeah. 
during the career of this, Phyllis was like hard pressed that this had to be Harriet. Yeah, of course. Um, and we do the same thing in my house. Like it had to be her um, doing this for whatever reason. And even like when shit gets real dicey, she sticks to her guns that no, it has to be Aunt Harriet. Yeah, yeah. It's like she's trying to tell us something. Like, or yeah. Whatever. Exactly. So when Phyllis asked out loud if it was Harriet, um, she was like, you know, on Harriet, if this is you, knock four times on the wall. And while they were all still in Robbie's bed, they felt a pressure on top of all of them. Like they all felt this. And then they heard four knocks in response. They all felt and heard a loud scratch coming from underneath them in the mattress. And then the bed covers flew from under the mattress and scrunched up into themselves. They all got off the bed and Phyllis touched the edges of the bed covers. They quickly straightened themselves out and laid lifeless. The scratching didn't stop and would not stop for three whole weeks. Other things began to happen that had no explanation. And they were not like contained inside the house. Like these things always followed him. So, for example, at school, Robbie's desk would shake and move into the aisle of his classroom you know like how they set up the class yeah it would just go into the aisle and of course he'd say he didn't do it at home random things around the house would fly like off like just pick up pick themselves up and just fly or they'd like shake from where they were sitting or hanging like pictures whatever yeah yeah. (laughs) i thought it was funny that they particularly pointed out like fruit would fly (laughs) (laughs) uh books clothes stuff like that banana (laughs) Normally, like Adam and, I, Adam and I have talked about before, these kinds of things happen only when the people who live in the house are there. Maybe just a person who's linked to the Ouija board to elicit feelings of isolation in their communities. But this thing just didn't give a fuck. You know? It would just happen when... Like, I mean, it happened to him at school. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And it happened in front of visitors. Some relatives came to visit, and while they were all sitting in the living room, the sofa chair that Robbie was sitting in flipped and sent Robbie flying off of it. Holy shit. All the visiting relatives saw and tried to recreate it, but the chair was just (laughs) too heavy. A vase also began to levitate from off the side table, and it stayed in the air for a while before it went flying into a wall and just breaking. Once they decided to take a family trip to go visit some friends in Boonesboro, which is about an hour and a half drive away from where they where their home in Mount Rainier was. Is that in Washington? Yeah, it's in that area. Everything was uneventful um, on the trip to there. It wasn't until they had settled in that something wild happened. Robbie was sitting on a rocking chair and it came off the floor and started spinning like a top with Robbie still in it. Fucking hell. (laughs) And they still weren't scared. Like, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah. So um, the parents tried to explain it away to their friends by saying like, (laughs) oh, it was a magic trick that Robbie learned. (laughs) But... Like, while Robbie was spinning in the chair, Robbie was like, it's not me. It's not a fucking magic trick, mom. (laughs) Yeah. 
Jesus. So Robbie's parents sought help by going to doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and all of them were in consensus in saying that there was nothing wrong with Robbie. Yeah, he was. He was. He was just, you know, that at the most he was a little high strung. Yeah, I'm like, can you blame him? No, <laughs> can't even sit in a chair without being fucked out of it or spun around. So the family was Lutheran, right? So they were like, okay, we're gonna go to the church. So they did. They turned to a Lutheran church in Washington D.C. D.C. ran by Reverend Luther Schultz. They confided in him that Robbie, about the time. They confided in him that Robbie about that time that they awoke to the sound of Robbie screaming. And they said that when they ran in to see what was going on, his dresser slid across the floor and blocked the doorway. Then the drawers opened and closed on their own. The reverend suggested prayer because there's no exorcism in the Lutheran church. You know, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And personally... He thought that the boy should just go to a psychiatrist, you know. Um, yeah, I always go to the psychiatrist when my drawers start opening on their own and chairs start throwing me out of it. Well, I'll explain why this was their response. Okay. What he did do was hold prayer circles for the family. And that's eventually how the story of what was going on in the house and with Robbie had spread. Right. Yeah. It's like other families would get involved and... Well, yeah, they they they'd ask. Well, okay, we're praying for this family, but what's going on? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert Robbie continued to have restless sleep. He would talk, scream, curse in his sleep. Sometimes it was as if he was talking to someone in his dreams. Schultz had read about poltergeist cases and noticed that the common denominators were that it only happened in the family home and the teens who lived in those homes. The paranormal activity would only stop when the teens were taken out of the home, and he figured it was because the teens were too unfamiliar with their surroundings to recreate what they had done at home. Okay, yeah. Schultz suggested Robbie spend time, spend the night at the reverend's house so that he could watch him. Robbie came over, didn't want to talk much, so they retired to a bedroom with two separate twin beds. At midnight, Schultz was awakened by a noise, and when he went to check on Robbie, he noticed that the bed was shaking and vibrating violently, with Robbie laying wide awake in it. They both left the room to gather themselves and came back into the room. Schultz, Schultz suggested that Robbie sleep in the sofa chair in that room instead. Robbie climbed in and sat in it with his knees to his chest. Like, I just feel so bad for this kid. Yeah, but can you imagine as well, like, that image in my head is this priest or whatever. I'm not going to make any pedo jokes, but, like, he's lying in his bed and this kid is just sitting in the chair in the corner, like, knees to his chest. Yeah, because... This whole scene is just fucking terrifying. Well, I mean, he needs to watch him. No, I, I know, I know. It's just... Mm-hmm. This is terrifying. Yeah, it's gotten to this point. But that's why the family, this was their last resort. Yeah, yeah. Nothing was helping. Of course, yeah. And I think that's why it's so alien to us because we've never personally experienced anything like this. 
Yeah, touch wood, touching wood right fucking now. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um. Anyways, so the chair, that the sofa chair, I'm stressing the words sofa chair that Robbie was in, backed itself into the wall and then tipped itself over. Schultz righted the sofa and he tried to tip it over himself, but couldn't because the chair had such a low center of gravity, like all fucking sofa chairs. Yeah, especially back then when, back then when they really made things to last. <laughs> but no, like old furniture was heavy as shit. Yeah. They weren't shopping to Ikea. No. <laughs> Schultz then decided that the best place for Robbie to sleep was on the floor. Because I think at this point he was like, can't flip the floor. No, <laughs> it was just like, I want this kid to have like a good night's sleep. Like yeah, he's obviously yeah. scared, you know, he's scared. He's over it, you know? Yeah. I'm sure the priest is scared too, you know, or the reverend. So, uh, Robbie was laying between two sheets, right? So that he laid one down on the floor, Robbie laid down and then another sheet. It was a Robbie sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> so at 3 a.m. Schultz awoke to Robbie and the blankets sliding under the twin bed as if they were like a unit like yeah all three all three the edges of the blankets and robbie himself were straight and stiff like there was no dragging of the fabric yeah or this it was, was like just one unit moving it was defying physics yeah jesus the reverend then went to check under the bed where robbie was and saw that Robbie was bouncing up and down between the floor and the underside of the mattress. His face was hitting the springs. When Robbie, when Schultz pulled him out, Robbie's face was covered in cuts. Fuck. Like it was literally jamming his face into that metal. Yeah, yeah. That's so fucked up. And so this is kind of the first time it started to actually hurt him. Yeah, well, I mean, there might have been other kinds of pains yeah yeah um or minuscule ones but this one was blatant yeah mm -hmm. really marking them open mm -hmm. throughout this whole ordeal robbie's demeanor was always indifferent as if he was used to this weirdness and just over it all the reverend was finally convinced that robbie was possessed schultz knew that he couldn't help and told the Mannheims that they should see a Catholic priest as they know more about, quote, these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. So this is where I explain about the whole reason why Lutherans just, there's no exorcisms in the Lutheran church. Because Lutherans don't see Satan as a powerful adversary. And that topics like possession were nothing more than outdated cop-outs from like the middle ages okay protestants particularly lutherans look at jesus and his exorcisms differently because apparently there are accounts of jesus performing exorcisms but they interpret it a certain way right so i'm paraphrasing because it's you know like yeah we're not going into the bible yeah <laughs> so they read these kinds of stories like jesus didn't correct local beliefs about the natural world like spirits and you know like he didn't he didn't go into these towns being like no they're not real he just went in and like fixes whatever problem they had and he just moved on because yeah. jesus was a rolling stone like he was performing magic tricks without actually saying oh no no no, he was just sick because he needed yeah whatever yeah salt 
<laughs> sure, whatever. Whatever used to happen back then. I don't fucking know. Yeah. Israel in the in the BCs. So that's why. Okay. Okay. So I mean, if they've grown up in the Lutheran church, and then Aunt Harriet's telling them, you know, just spirits are these neutral things. Um. You then the last like, thing in their mind was the devil and evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so they just kept poking and prodding. Yeah, and they were, uh, again, consistent that this was still Aunt Harriet at this time. Oh, like, do you not remember the way Aunt Harriet <laughs> used to come in and smash Robbie's face against the underside of the bed? It just wasn't... It wasn't something that they were exposed to. Yeah, no, no, they weren't. It just wasn't in there. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, yeah. The Mannheims called St. James's Church and got Father E. Albert Hughes and arranged to meet at the Catholic Church, which apparently was weird because, like, of the whole Protestants and Catholics don't, don't mix and mingle. Yeah. Also, it didn't help that the room the meeting was in turned, like, freezing cold as soon as Robbie entered. <laughs> Hughes's phone started to shake. And it was at this moment that the 29-year-old priest was sure Robbie was possessed. He was like, you don't need to fucking spend the night at my rectory. You're <laughs> fucking possessed. <laughs> Rector? I damn near. <laughs> <laughs> <You're so stupid>. <laughs> <laughs> he then sent the family home with holy water and blessed candles. Like, remember, this is a 29-year-old priest. That's what I was thinking. Like, every year I age... I'm 29 now, by the way. But yeah, every year that I get older, it's like, maybe next year is an appropriate age for certain things. <laughs> but to like be seeing families with possessed children or possibly possessed children at the age of 29, I'd be thinking like, you know, a priest in his 60s or something would be like, you know, I studied this for 40 years and now I'm finally ready to... Well, see, the thing is, you wouldn't... See that's the not exorcist how, straight away. No, I know th that. Yeah, that's just not how things were because exorcists were few and far in between. Yeah. So if you were to see a priest, more than likely they were not the trained in exorcisms. Yeah. Um, they have specialties that they can focus on while they're in school. Yeah, like that's why we when we covered uh, that other priest that we covered. Oh, okay. Fucking, what was his name again? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so at home, Phyllis went on to spread the holy water everywhere and she lit the candles. Not soon after, Hughes received a phone call saying that something had lifted the body, the body, the bottle of holy water and smashed it into the ground. And when she tried to light the candle, the flame shot to the ceiling Jesus. So she put it out, you know, because she was scared of burning the fucking house down. Yeah. As you do. Oh, you want to light this candle, do you? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that. Before Hughes could even begin to act, he had to follow the instructions in the official book of Catholic rituals called the Roman Rituals. That is super fucking old mm -hmm. and has not changed much since the first century. This book is going to come up a lot. Yeah. And it's super fucking interesting. Apparently, it's like, I think it's like either, I know these are like really random numbers, but either 45 or 21 pages. <laughs> oh, what? That's it? Yeah. But it's soup. It's not 
it's vague and specific at the same time. Right, right. It's specific in the things that you have to do and the state that you have to be when you're exercising or giving someone an exorcism. <laughs> exercising. <laughs> um, but also very vague in, okay, you have to note certain things. You know, what is what do you see this you know they call them they call these uh victims of possession they call them patients in this book you know know you know the behavior in the patient or you know like that those kind of open-ended things yeah yeah, yeah. because each one is going to be different right in that book it says that he would have to contact who is referred to as quote the ordinary which is the priest who had immediate jurisdiction in church matters and that was Reverend Patrick O'Boyle, who was the art, archbishop, 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 yeah, of Washington. So O'Boyle had to just review the case and decide if an exorcism was necessary, and also he had to be the one to appoint the necessary person to do it. The Roman ritual also has a description on what kind of person this has to be. Like, he has to be older than Hughes. Oh, okay, <laughs> and have imp- impeccable moral fiber otherwise you know because satan will use their sins against them but these people also have to do their homework before they do this exorcism like they have to read up on these kinds of cases to know what to expect you know none of this was followed because hughes was chosen to do the exorcism and he did not do his homework so o'boyle was like, fuck the rules. I'm going to choose this 29-year-old priest who has no idea what he's doing. He hasn't studied this. He's going to do it. And Hughes was like, cool. I'll just go to confession because apparently, according to Catholic faith, um, demons can't use things that you've sins that you've been absolved of against you because you've technically been forgiven. Yeah, yeah. So basically he was oh boy, I was like, Ugh, I don't know, you figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Alright. He just kinda left him out to dry. <laughs> yeah. Cause I thought they were supposed to get in touch with the Vatican and all. Uh no. Apparently not. Maybe things have changed since the fifties. I think yeah, I do I do think they reviewed them in like 1999 or something. Oh, well, when the movie came out, there was tons of exorcisms happening. And I think that might have changed the rules a little bit to keep priests from going exorcist happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyways, so he did. Uh, Hughes went to go to confession. He had, again, he had very little education in demonology. His education only prepared him to help Catholics with regular moral problems. <laughs> yeah, uh, like how to be married. Yeah. There were other priests in the era who had a better understanding on how to deal with this, and no one knows why O'Boyle didn't go to any of them instead. I guess he was just like, deal with it, let it be over, let's move on and forget about this shit. Yeah, he probably didn't even fucking think twice about it. No. The exorcism took place in the winter of 1949 by Hughes, with no advice from O'Boyle. He was also instructed not to document anything about it. At this point, Robbie was just... A husk of his former self. Listless, waking up with scratches all over his body, not sleeping, and not going to school anymore. 
and probably and just not caring like just still indifferent i mean have you ever gone without sleep for days and days no <laughs> i would imagine i'd be i would also be a husk of my yeah, former yeah. self <laughs> he was secretly admitted to the catholic run georgetown hospital under an assumed name robbie was strapped to a bed hughes probably was attended by a nun of the hospital so they both or you know they whoever however many were in attendance they all entered the room and it began right no one noticed one of robbie's hands free itself from under its strap and reach under the bed to wrangle a bed spring from the mattress robbie used this to slice hughes from shoulder to wrist a wound so deep that it would need 100 stitches to close back up. Jesus. Hughes stopped the exorcism, left the hospital, and had a complete mental breakdown. He'll later describe, like, it wasn't just a wound to him. Yeah. He felt a force pierce him, like, with that wound. Like, in while he was getting assaulted, he felt evil enter him like yeah wow so it was like a physical wound (laughs) and a spiritual wound fuck he was never the same after that but he apparently he had eventually um like he became like i guess like before he was like cool guy priest Yeah, yeah but after that like he was devout like he was just like i know why we're here now i know why i'm a priest i know what i'm dealing with now you know poor guy yeah full function of that arm would not come back to him the rumor spread that it was robbie that had stabbed him and the family moved not too far from their original address but you know the stigma followed yeah yeah many people knew who they were and the evil that had invaded that family Phyllis decided that a bigger change was needed. Carl and Phyllis had family in St. Louis, Missouri, so they talked about going. Shortly after, Robbie was in the bathroom and started screaming his head off. When Phyllis ran to see what was wrong, she claimed that the word Lewis had appeared in scratch marks on Robbie's chest. March 5th, they left Maryland and arrived at the Lutheran side of the family at their house. Okay. Because um, half of Robbie's family is Lutheran and the other half is Catholic. Oh, that kind of works out. So they arrived at their relative's house on March 7th. At this point, whatever plagued the family had been going on for seven weeks now. While they were there, they made their own homemade Ouija board. Great idea. And gathered around the table. One person would have a pencil and hold it over whatever letter the spirit moved it to. And another person would write down the letter on a sheet of paper to see what message they'd received. So it was like one of those kinds of boards. Yeah. Their board told them that it was Aunt Harriet haunting Robbie. Unfortunately, what they didn't know was that Robbie would serve as a walking Ouija board too. Like words would manifest themselves in his skin. Oh. Like scratches. Like the Lewis. Yeah. Right. So that wasn't like an isolated incident yeah yeah (laughs) i wrote and and i highlighted like why would they do this (laughs) (laughs) oh like they kept it up they're like 
Yeah, they were like, let's let's bring out the Ouija board again. <laughs> hey, Robbie. Hey, Robbie. Do that thing you do. <laughs> so fucked up. Anyways, so let's discuss. They were still convinced, of course, that it was Aunt Harriet. You know? Yeah. Um, and even more... <laughs> of course, it said so on Robbie's bike. <laughs> <laughs> and even more so now because they had such a bad experience with the Catholic. Oh, like the Catholic was a Lutheran. Yeah, so like in... No, like, so, okay. So they sought help from Lutherans, right? They sought help from Catholics. When they sought help from Lutherans, they were very, they had, obviously they had a lot in common because they were like very, no, this has to be, you know, spirit. If this is at this point, it's, it's a spiritual ailment, you know, something's going on. But like in the Catholic side, when they tried I guess that kind of help, all it really brought them was violence and, you know, talks about demons. And she just wanted to believe that it was just a spiritual ailment and that it was Aunt Harriet because to believe the other side of it would just be terrifying. Yeah. So that's why they kept doing what they were doing, you know? Anyways, so apparently words appearing on Robbie was a normal thing, like I said before. (laughs) According to the family, words would carve themselves on Robbie whenever the thing that was plaguing him wanted to speak or had an opinion. There was a time when Robbie was playing with his cousin. Phyllis was thinking that maybe they should enroll him in a school in St. Louis because in St. Louis, everything seemed to calm down a bit. Robbie was beginning to show signs of his old self. When she suggested this to Robbie, words carved out of him saying no school. I know how it sounds. Uh, Was this on his chest again? Sounds weird. I know. But it just seems unlikely. Personally, I think it's unlikely that a family that surely at this point has been traumatized by this whole ordeal. You know, like. I don't know many people who would sensationalize traumatic experiences. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Everything was kept anonymous. They didn't want anyone to know. They attempted to move away. Yeah, yeah. So that nobody knew them. So I don't think this was, I don't think they made this up. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but do you not think the kid could have done this to himself? No, because while that was happening, um, they were all outside. He was playing with his cousin. And as Phyllis asked him, hey, what about school? Oh, it happened there and then. Yeah. Wow. Like he lifted up his shirt and it just fucking said it. No school. Here's the answer, bitch. But it sucked because every time that happened... It was always at Robbie's expense because yeah, of course. the it shit hurt. Carving into his <laughs> I mean, skin. fuck. Yeah. So after the Lutheran seance, that's what I'm calling it. Okay. The family moved in with the Catholic side of the family, Catherine and George, and their kids, Marty, Billy, and Elizabeth. The day was uneventful, and then the Robbie they knew started to peep through again when he was playing with Marty. That night, Marty and Robbie wanted to have an old school sleepover together and shared the same bed. At midnight, the family woke up to sounds coming from the bed the boys were staying in. The bed they were laying in was shaking and trembling as the boys lay perfectly still in it. And and these, like, he's like 13, 14 at this point. 
you know like he's tech he's still a kid yeah yeah well is this all still over a matter of weeks so at this point seven weeks right right so almost two months of this shit yeah yeah and it doesn't end very soon elizabeth said that she would seek help from the jesuit priest at her private mm-hmm. school and phyllis had to agree because at this point um like it wasn't just their family like this was affecting i mean this touch this thing this situation has now spilled over to marty you know his little cousin so yeah like if i was elizabeth i I just wouldn't allow that sleepover elizabeth was marty's sister oh sorry the mom then yeah no like and they all knew you know but i guess they just didn't realize how bad it was because they had never seen it on their own again like with their own eyes you know whereas robbie was like very indifferent about it the family was terrified because this is the first that they'd seen of it so phyllis had to agree and she was like all right fine um so elizabeth she went to go talk to father raymond bishop after her conversation with elizabeth raymond bishop or father bishop went to the house and blessed the rooms of the house with holy water he said a special prayer over the bed that robbie was sleeping in this prayer was made for low level demon demon activity okay bishop suspected that they were looking at an infestation considering all the things that elizabeth had told him infestation which is when demons stalk the objects and environment surrounding and the the environment surroundings of the person they were tormenting robbie was past that point though so infestation was would be what you would think of poltergeist yeah okay robbie at this stage was obsession which means the demon he makes things happen in the host you know what i'm saying okay like the carvings yeah yeah yeah. on robbie While Bishop was still in the house, he pinned a second-class relic to Robbie's pillow. So a first-class relic is something that comes off the body of a saint or Jesus himself, like a piece of hair or whatever. A second-class relic is something that they've touched. Okay. I learned this in this book. This book, (laughs) by the way, this book is phenomenal. That night, the activity was more pronounced, and it was evident to Bishop that more drastic actions had to be taken. So he enlisted the help of another Jesuit priest named William S. Bowdern to go with him on a house call to Robbie's house. He was like, dude, you got to come see this shit. (laughs) Bowdern agreed that it was that this was the real deal, Holyfield, and initially helped him find an exorcism or uh, sorry, helped him find an exorcist and also helped him to do research about past exorcism. Their search for an exorcist came up fruitless, as the priests that had performed this ritual in the past said that they did not have the strength to do it again. And I'll describe why. Okay. The sources were skimpy, too, because there weren't many documented cases that they could trust. That was like two, I think. Yeah, yeah. And they were really skimpy. What they could build on was what could be taken from the Roman ritual which was the book that contains the prayers and instructions on how to conduct an exorcism. The instruction in this book strongly rely on the priest's intuition when it comes to any additional prayers that should be recited during the ritual and how often it should be performed. 
when the duo had gave all the information to their archbishop, Ritter, Ritter chose Bowdern to be the exorcist and told him not to document anything. So the same as the other guys, like, mm-hmm. look, do this shit, but do it on, like off the record. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the two ignored this advice. They wanted to leave their experiences documented for future references in case another priest had to deal with a possession himself in the future. Right on. I know. What followed was a sequence of rituals. Not at all like how you see in movies, like a one done and, you know? Yeah. Bowdern and Bishop acquired a driver, a younger priest who worked with them, called Walter Halloran. That was his name. Halloran was recruited without a heads up. <laughs> like, they literally said, hey, dude, can you drive us here? Oh, he was an actual, like, he drove the car. Like, Yeah. <laughs> okay. He was like, hey, can you drive us up here? And he was like, sure. Like, I'll, I'll be, I'll pick you up at this time. Here goes a lift, lift. And we'll head out. And as soon as they got to the house, they were like, hey, come, come in there with us. And he was like, okay. <laughs> I can always, hey, you go in there first. <laughs> <laughs> but they literally told him nothing. Yeah, good. good. <laughs> so when he went in, like he was in there for a surprise, dude. Yeah. So this is Bobby. <laughs> Robbie. Oh, Robbie. Robbie, Bobby. Robbie is a mess. <laughs> All right. So during the exorcism, Robbie fell into sleeping spells. So this should tell you because how I described the um, obsession. Oh, it can force him to. Possession can force a person into losing consciousness. And so that's the final like, well, not, I guess he takes your soul is the final one, but yeah, yeah. uh, this is past obsession, obsession. You're still awake. You know, you have normal sleep. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when you're possessed, the demon can, Make you you lose consciousness at the drop of a dime and bring you back the same way. Right. Good to know. Yeah. So he fell into sleeping spells. The Roman ritual states that the demon inside the patient will keep them unconscious so that they're unaware that the exorcism is going on. Mm, Clever bastard. Yeah. When Robbie woke up, it was not Robbie anymore. He would spit in the faces of the priest and his family whoever who it was was in the room with them the crazy thing is he would do this with his eyes closed so that's how you knew it was the demon yeah if the the if robbie had his eyes closed and he was saying shit moving around it wasn't robbie it was the demon when his eyes were open it was robbie like his eyes were closed and he was spitting at people's face never missing wow yeah just to bring this home, like the craziness of it all. The kid was 95 pounds and he always needed more than two people to hold him down. Jesus. But they had to do this all night. These exorcisms went from like 8, 7 p.m. all the way until like 3, 5 o'clock in the morning. Every night. And if you're holding down someone for that long of period of time, you're praying, you're talking, anything, you're fighting, you yeah, know, yeah. it's a motherfucker, man. Yeah, it's you intense. Know? Scratches and cuts would appear as he writhed around trying to break the hold of the people who held him down. He would urinate the bed uh, he was held down on and in his moments of lucidity, he would complain that his privates were burning. 
but this was like some radioactive piss according to them because like he pissed and impossible amounts of fluids will leave him whether it was through pee or spit like they were like how the fuck is he spitting gobs of spit like this amount of yeah whatever jesus and apparently like the stench was so foul that they opened the windows and it would just be so foul during like after these exorcism rituals these nightly ones it was always the same like they'd come in do the thing leave in the wee hours of the morning and robbie would be tired too because he wasn't actually resting yeah and never once did he remember what he did and to this day like he doesn't remember anything yeah well i'm not surprised but he would only tell of what nightmares he had when he was asleep in his dreams he he would say that he would fight demons oh wow mm-hmm. like he would see he said he would see them in his mind's eye that he would be fighting these demons isn't that crazy that's nuts he said that he felt powerless from these demons up until the first night of the exorcism he finally felt like he had a fighting chance to beat them oh but it was giving him hope like the exorcism. at the begin at the be- yeah it wasn't until that first exorcism he was like i think i can beat this hold up i got this yeah what's wild is that after they were done dealing with robbie the priest they had to go back to the school and go about their normal jobs because this was all supposed to stay secret so they wouldn't be able to get excused from their normal duties no matter how late they were done these nights would go on like till the next day yeah yeah as the nightly doses of exorcisms went on the time it took to get him to normal sleep was less and less so like that's what you'll see like they'll have patterns of like you know sometimes the exorcisms would run short sometimes they would run long after they got into a routine of doing them and it was it's kind of like when you're sick you know like you have your bad days and you have you your good days in this case it was like it wasn't so violent, I guess, or it wasn't so long. But when it was bad, it was bad. So, like, they would be able to tell, oh, no, he's not under, like, oppression or whatever. He's just genuinely sleeping right now. Yeah, they could tell when he was asleep. Okay. Because he wouldn't move. Yeah, he wasn't having any fucking weird reactions or anything. Yeah, I have a theory. I think the reason why it the various amounts of time it took for some of these exorcisms like the varying schedules if you will yeah was because this was a way to mess with the priest that performs the exorcism it's a sort of way to mess with their head because they're literally fighting with something evil right Mm -hmm. and you'll see like the ritual states that the demon will bring your hopes up Oh, it actually says that. Yeah. It will pull you into a false sense of, okay, this is getting better. Yeah, we're winning. And then it'll just get real bad and the exorcism will last until 5 a.m., you know? Yeah, yeah. And the reason why that happens is because it's to plant a seed of despair, if you will, into the mind of a yeah, priest. Yeah, like try and break them down. And the one of the ultimate sins is the loss of hope, the loss of faith. Right. And that's how they do that. That's my theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess. 
So the demon started to get more creative when it tried to get a rise out of the priest. Did it start uh, cross-stitching? No. Uh, uh. But it did start writing on the sheets. Oh, okay. Different, <laughs> different take. So the ritual book warns that no matter what the demon said or did, you should never engage with it. Once during an exorcism, Bowdern asked, when will the demon leave? And an X emerged from Robbie's skin. So Bowdern interpreted as the demon would depart in 10 days. After 10 days of exorcism, all fell quiet. No more thrashing, so they thought they got rid of it. The family started making preparations to return home, but then it started up again, four days later. Robbie went to sleep one night, and again the family ran into his room because his bed started to shake again. What was different this time was that Robbie was asleep, sitting up, and, Ooh, mov- I don't like that. <laughs> and moving his finger on the sheets as if he was writing something. So the family decided to try to decipher what the message was before they called Bowdern. Because at this point, Bowdern was like, all right, cool, it's done. Yeah, yeah, all right, I'm out. Bowdern rushed to the house and saw that the family was providing Robbie with sheets to ride on. It was a fucking circus. But Bowdern began the exorcism. Robbie then asked Bowdern for a pencil. The book warns against the creative ways that the devil or demon will use in order to interrupt an exorcism or to engage in dialogue with the priest doing the exorcism, and Bowdern fell for it. What a dick. He allowed one of the priests that came with him to give Robbie a pencil. Bishop had not come with him because one of the messages that Robbie wrote was that Bishop would die a terrible death if he came back to see Robbie. So Bishop knew this uh, because like one of the messages that he wrote before Bowdern got there was that if Bishop came back, then he would die. So when he they told Bowdern over the phone, he was like, you know, mm-hmm. this yeah. is what he said. Bishop shouldn't come. He was like, all right, cool. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe the the demon knew Bishop would intervene, would have intervened and kept Bowdern from allowing an avenue for communication. Yeah, maybe he was on to him. Like. Yeah. So the family decided to have Robbie baptized as a Catholic, as Bowdern had uh, suggested it. Robbie agreed that he wanted that too. The day of the baptism, when the family were on their way to the church, Robbie started talking in demonic voices, like in broad daylight, which he hadn't done before. Mm. And he started attacking his mom inside the car while it was moving. The radio kept changing stations on its own until there was only static. Nope. Robbie's uncle turns off the car and struggles to peel Robbie off of Phyllis. Then they started the car back up again and he started choking whoever was driving because like they had to take turns driving because like one got hurt and then, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) that was crazy. Like I wrote here, I think it's funny how the demon kept saying shit like, so you think Holy Communion will get me to leave? But he sure as shit kept fighting to keep them from driving him to the church. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. So the baptism continued through small, like small and weak moments of Robbie coming through to answer questions that one would normally ask in a baptism about renouncing the devil and accepting Jesus and stuff like that. There was so much fighting that the baptism itself took four hours. Fuck. <laughs> the day after the baptism, Robbie woke up possessed instead of the normal Robbie, which was the first time that it ever happened. Because remember, Robbie normally goes possessed like at 
eight o'clock at night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no, no, no. It's not eight o'clock. <laughs> Maybe it knew like the Holy Communion was coming because that's what follows after a baptism. Right, right. So communing came and went, but it did nothing but flip a Robbie and demon switch on and off rapidly. He'd go from sweet Robbie asking for plates of food to throwing them at the priest. He would escape the priest's hold and chase them around the room to hurt them. He would spit coke um, again. He continued with the spitting and all this other shit like he was just a nightmare. The ritual instructs that the exorcist must note what words in the prayers elicit violent reactions from the patient. In Bowdern's experience, the demon would get agitated when he'd ask the hours and days of or day of his departure. Bowdern interpreted this as a sign that the demon knew his fun time was almost over. It's important to note that from the beginning of this whole process, Bowdern's health was declining. The book warns that this would surely happen to the priests, and it's not uncommon that the priests who started the exorcisms would not be the same one who would finish them to the end. Wow. Bowdern was already weighing out who his options were to take over. There was an account from Bowdern's brother who had seen him on one occasion and noted that he had lost a ton of weight and had like pus oozing boils all over his body. Oh, Jesus. And styes in his eyes. Like he had pus, like he had boils in his, like he could barely raise his arms because they were so painful. Bowdoin was most likely fasting on bread and water this whole time because the book instructed him to. Yeah, yeah. So like throughout this whole time, he was going back and forth from different places. So like um, he was he was at home in the, at the beginning, like in, not at home, but like in uh, his family's house in St. Louis. Yeah. They took him to um, the church to get him the, you know, the college to get him baptized. And then they ended up taking to taking him to a hospital they ended up going back to to his hometown at some point and there like they were like okay we he needs to continue his um exorcisms right because like the dad had to go back home like they all just wanted to go home yeah, yeah. and they did but they were like well Bowden was like i better go with you and so like he went with them back home they went to the the Alexian brothers hospital and that's where they put they put him on the fifth floor they didn't tell anybody why he was there you know they they just the Alexian bro like when he got there nobody wanted to help Bowdern like he contacted his cat like catholic priest there they wanted nothing to do with him um he called several catholic run hospitals to try to get him a room somewhere because he was like in a very poor state Nobody wanted to take him, yeah. but the Alexian brothers did. So the Alexian brothers, is it's a group of um, Catholic priests, I think they are, um, who, like, their main uh, saint is St. Alexis or uh, something like that. And he's supposed to be, like, the patron saint of, like, helping the poor. Like, he, that was, he, dedi he dedicated himself to helping the poor. Right. And they also taken like priests who have like alcoholic problems they were some of the there were some of the first people to to say that alcoholism is an addiction like it's an actual yeah medical problem it's just i just loves a drink yeah so i thought that was pretty interesting yeah and uh 
so going back to like why he was fasting apparently like the there was a saint ignatius was the one that did exorcisms and i think jesus had too but the only way that they were successful is after it was while fasting i have heard that before but so that's why he was fasting. Yeah, like you would assume, like, oh, it's just like one day's worth of bread and water. But actually, this has gone on for weeks now, right? Yeah. So while he was staying at this hospital, like this is like the final destination of his whole possession career. Like during the day, like, so he was already converted to a Catholic. He was... This is, sorry, this is Robbie that's staying in the hospital, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yeah, we're still talking about Robbie. Yeah. He's staying in the hospital. He's not at home anymore. His dad... Uh, spends a night with him some time so that he's not by himself but well actually he's never by himself there's always somebody with him okay because he's in such a delicate state like at this point he changes at the drop of a dime like whether it's daytime or nighttime you know yeah they just take over whenever they want yeah so like they um so they rotate priest um he's a devout catholic this kid already you know, and he loves like the stories that they tell him about the saints. And, you know, he learns his prayers, rosaries. He helps other priests with their daily duties around the hospital. Like he's, you know, he's really into it, you know. Yeah. And again, I think it's because remember what he said when they, the exorcisms first started. It felt like he found strength. Yeah, it gave him hope or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one day, Robbie was hanging out with a priest and the priest was like, well, you know, he hasn't been possessed during the day. So I'll take him to the stations of the cross that were nearby. Mm -hmm. And so they went, he went, uh, it was him and another priest walked him um, through the stations and was telling him the stories about Jesus. And in the middle of the way uh, of the way, Robbie ended up breaking into a sprint, trying to run away. Oh, shit. And so the priest tackled him (laughs) and, like, dragged his ass back into the car. And, like... So he was taken to him to a Stations of the Cross mass. No, like, um, I think they had, like, the... um, Just on the stations. Yeah. Um, At some place called White House. Not though. I don't think it's the White House. (laughs) Maybe it was just an area or something. Yeah. church had it. And again, like just like the car ride to the church, like they were, Robbie was attacking these priests while they were trying to fucking drive back to the hospital. Yeah. And so by the time Bowdern got to Robbie's room, Robbie was like, hey, like what's What's up? Yeah. (laughs) Like as if, like as if nothing fucking happened. So that night, Robbie's demon spoke again, saying, God has told me to leave at 11 tonight, but not without a struggle. Of course, this was not true. Again, reinforcing the the belief that um, absence of hope will weaken the will of the exorcist. Right, yeah. Plus, the devil is a big fat liar. <laughs> On the actual night of the last fight, Robbie said the rosary and prayers in the brief in his brief moments of consciousness. He said that he felt like he had to do everything he could to help get the demon out. So then he started, which was I thought were pretty cool because he was like, you know, I had to be more active in my solution. Yeah, I can't just lie here while this all goes on. Yeah. From when the demon started speaking through Robbie, the demon had mentioned that 
He would leave if only Robbie said a certain word, but he wouldn't let Robbie say it. So like in those moments that the demon spoke through Robbie, he would be like, you know, I'll leave if he says this one word, but he'll never say it because, you know, he he's like, I'm not going to let him. Right. But, you know, and the, Bowdern, Bowdern and Bishop, they sort of mold this over in their minds because they were like, what if he's fucking lying? Yeah. You know, and what could this word possibly fucking be? Like, if, if it wasn't a lie, you know? And they, it had already strung him along, like, with the 10 days and, you know, like, I, yeah, I'll leave. And he doesn't fucking leave, you know? Yeah. So, in the ritual, it states that the exorcist would need to keep an eye out for a sign that it was truly over because a demon would absolutely pretend that he's left his host in order to stop the exorcisms from continuing. This sign is different in every case and the priest had to trust his gut to know what the sign would be. So you, that's what I mean. Like it was specific, but vague at the same time. Yeah. So anyways, going back to the final night in the midst of Robbie's usual thrashing and writhing, cursing and spitting, a different voice came through. It said, Satan, Satan, I am Saint Michael, and I command you, Satan, and the other evil spirits to leave the body in the name of Dominus immediately now. After that, Robbie's body contorted and he screamed for another 20 minutes before collapsing. He just simply woke up and said, it's gone. Those who were in the room rejoiced, all except Bowdern. He was still waiting for his sign. Days and nights passed, and he was still waiting for his sign. In the meantime, Robbie had joined the other priest, helping them to do their duties in the hospital. You know, the nights passed, and they were uneventful. But he was still in, staying in the hospital. He was still in the hospital, because Bowdern was like, no, yeah, yeah, not yet. It wasn't until one day when Robbie went into his room on the fifth floor to take a nap, because he said he was feeling drowsy. Again, he was never left alone, so he was there with a priest. Shortly after, there was a huge bang noise. And apparently, like, it resonated in the hallways, in the rooms. Priests, nuns, fucking patients, everyone heard it in yeah. different parts of this big-ass hospital. Shit. And it all seemed to come from the fifth floor. So everybody jolted to the fifth floor and the priest in Robbie's room heard it too like Robbie heard it yeah and so they all headed towards his room because they, they figured that's where the room where the noise is coming from the priest just opens a door he's like what the fuck's going on you know like <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and Robbie's just sitting on the bed just smiling like sitting oh. up like but he just looks not like evil he just looks at peace oh okay and Bowdern was like, this This is my sign. That big bang, that was the sign. Mm-hmm. And apparently, uh, Robbie went on to live a very normal life. Nothing ever came back. Um, And that was it for him. That was it? Fucking hell. Yeah. Nothing ever came to pass, like all the threats about... The other priests and stuff. They lived long lives. Like they died in their 80s. Some in their wow. 90s. And anybody who was involved, they lived long lives. 
even uh, Bowdern himself. Um, they continued in the priesthood and everything. Once Robbie checked out of that hospital, they locked that room and no one ever, it, like no one's supposed to go in there. The building has been since knocked down. Okay. They thought it was weird. Like the people who knocked it down, they're like, why is this room not in use? But like there's still people alive who have relatives that were these priests that were involved. Yeah. Um, so the story got out because, because this was all supposed to say hush, hush, uh, Schultz was the one that got the ball rolling when the fam was like, Hey, we're not Lutherans anymore. We're Catholics. So he was like, all right, well, my confidentiality is null and void. So he ended up the reverend, the Lutheran reverend. Yeah. Oh man. So what he ended up doing was he was using Robbie's real name but not his last name but what he was doing was he was asking other like he was asking professionals like psychologists and whatever be like hey i had this case this is what i saw do you know anything that resembles this yeah and apparently like somebody picked this up you know like uh, media got a hold of this all this questioning and they published an article with very vague details just like there's this kid that was possessed or whatever and the writer of the movie the exorcist saw this and was inspired to write a movie about it okay so that's how that happened so the diary the diary was handed over to the alexian brothers and that's where it was kept when it was knocked down like they really had no control over like whose hands it would fall on yeah yeah so it kind of just got tossed around or whatever anyways like rumors do got around of who the priests that were involved so it came out that hughes was involved you know because hughes was the first priest that had done the exorcist yeah he's the or guy the exorcism got, uh, got his arms sliced open right so he was still in the priesthood and um he had eventually gotten this assistant and the assistant knew about the rumors that Hughes was one of the ones that was involved in the exorcism. And, you know, he would talk about it with his other priest friends and they were like, he was like, all right, all right, I'm, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> so they did. And uh, Hughes was like, yeah, devil's real. And he's fucking strong, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt him. And he was like, you know, he was talking about, he said that he was thinking about doing seminars to like for priests so that they were aware of the dangers, of the dangers. And like, you know, he was confiding in him all these things. And he was just like, at the end of the conversation, he's like, hey, like, I would love to talk more about this, but I'm tired. Like it, it exhausts him. Yeah. So he was like, let's talk later. And you know, come up with these plans for the seminar. He was like, all right, cool. And so he went to sleep and like four days later, he died of a heart attack. What the fuck? He was the only one that died prematurely. He's also the only one that got attacked. Yeah. Like that. He had a heart attack at 62. Anyways, um, so the diary itself ended up finding its way to the writer of this book and... The book has a copy of the diary. Wow. So if you're interested in reading the diary, I suggest you pick up this book. Holy shit. All right. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's my story. What? What? What do you think of it? That was really fucking cool. And in my head, like I'm picturing all the, like the hospital near where I grew up and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That means like, I mean, that's what stories are supposed to do, right? Yeah. They're supposed to like give you, you're supposed to, it's supposed to tell us a movie. You see a movie in your head. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, that was, that was really cool. Like that poor kid, a fucking Aunt Harriet. Yeah. The one that started it all. Yeah. Yeah. And how did she die again? She just died suddenly. Probably fucking around. I don't know, but that's why we tell you kids, don't mess with the Ouija board. Yeah, they are bad news. All right. Well, you obviously thoroughly enjoyed researching. I loved it. I learned so much about the Catholic religion. Like, they're literally, like, I know how you're like, I just don't, I know you don't buy the idea of someone just like Catholic superheroes, but I absolutely (laughs) do. But not because of the organized religion part of it, but because of the faith it has to take to combat something so evil. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? No, I get it. I do. I'm just, what's the word, like disillusioned, I guess. I just don't trust priests. No, yeah. <laughs> hey, I get it, you know. I get the, I don't trust priests, you know. The pet, I mean, fuck, pedophiles, you know, like in the priesthood and like all the fucked up things that were done in the name of Christ. You know, like these conquests and like genocides and shit all in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Like, I get it. But this particular story, like, oh, makes, no, I, like it, it gave me a new perspective. Yeah, and I do love those stories as well. Like, and I believe in them too. So, I don't know. I'm 50-50, I guess. Depends what day you catch me on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, guess what time it is. It's almost time for bed. Almost time for bed, but it's also, <laughs> listen to story time. I still have to take a shower, Adam. <laughs> that was my beautiful musical in- introduction. I'm going to try and make that a weekly thing. Okay. Nobody asked for it. So this week's story, listener story, is super short, but it's a good one. And it was sent to us by our listener, Caitlin, who lives in the Windsor, Essex area. Of London, I think. (laughs) England, anyway. So, Caitlin says, I wanted to share one of my ghost stories with you guys. The house I am currently living in, I had a paranormal experience in. When I was around 12 years old, I was trying to sleep in my room and I heard two voices talking to each other in a language I didn't understand. The next morning, I had told my grandma and mom what I heard And they told me that the previous owner's husband and mother-in-law were Italian. Okay. And had passed away in this house. Which is over 100 years old. Sick. So she heard the old resident. Yeah. Spooky. I picked it. I picked that up. I gathered. So so what happened? (laughs) (laughs) She also said, I love the show. Keep up the good work. Caitlin, P.S. I have many more stories to tell you from the Windsor, Essex area. Awesome. And I wrote back pretty quickly and I said, Caitlin, tell us all these stories, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I really like that one. I like yeah, a, yeah. a good residual haunt. Yeah. 
And as well, there's nothing too spooky. Like I know you call it the stone tape theory, but I still call it the stench. Yeah, we're gonna we're we're gonna try and change that to just the stench. Yeah. Um but yeah. So that was this week's episode. I wonder how long it's gonna be. Probably longer if we keep on going on our tangents. Yeah. <laughs> In the beginning and the end. Well, you know, while I was telling my story, the computers was started acting up more often than it normally did. Yeah, for whatever reason. I I just reckon it's when the computer grows a little bit tired. Mm-hmm. It starts to repeat stuff. And it, it doesn't come through on, like when I'm editing it or anything like that. But as we're talking, it'll be like, it'll just repeat the last word we said like three or four times. Like times, 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 times. And we just have to kind of sit back and wait for it. But it tends to happen when we're talking about like the spookiest of shit. Yeah, it can be really jarring. Yeah. You just all of a sudden there's someone talking in your headphones. like. Yeah. And then when you play it back, you can't hear it. You're just like, what was that? Because <laughs> yeah. you can't prove it to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So that's it. What did I talk about? Oh, yeah. The Canadian one. And then... No, this one was America. So we're all North America this week, whatever. Okay. We want your stories every week. We want your stories. And we sincerely hope that you enjoyed our Halloween extravaganza. Um, I know the guys put in a lot of work and so did we. And it was really fun doing it. So hopefully we'll have some more episodes like that in the future. Yes. Um. Yeah, also, if anybody has any suggestions of topics that they would like us to cover, feel free to send them in. Mm-hmm. And you can do that by emailing us at, us at weeklycreep at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. All our handles are just weeklycreep. Yep, everywhere. If you're a fan of Reddit, find us on there. Our subreddit is completely empty <laughs> so uh, feel free to add comments or do what i don't really understand reddit post post anything yeah post a picture of your dog i don't care yep <laughs> i want right. to see your pets yeah show us your pets <laughs> send us in pictures of your pets and we'll add them to our story or our instagram or whatever yeah fuck it um do what we want Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see y'all later. Or yeah. we'll, we'll not see you We'll later. see you next week. We'll talk at you later. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Bye. All right, bye.